Equanimity is the place where a number of the higher values of life converge. So everything converges in equanimity that is uh, very valuable and worthwhile. There are other things that are other emotions, other states that are valuable. But this one is particularly interesting in the convergence of wisdom, clarity, the intellect, and emotion. And we should always remember that equanimity is a an emotion. But you can't achieve it <clears throat> without a certain amount of reasoning processes. So the other night I talked about how do you start towards equanimity? And the first thing, as the Buddha says, he's, he's not just a person who advises equanimity or says <clears throat> that he attained it through his own mysterious ways. And that is really the difference that we've had lots of um, mystics in history who seem to have uh, found their way to something very, very valuable, but when they try to describe it, uh, it doesn't help us. We don't. It can't help us get there. Mystics often uh, people come and uh, get advice and so forth from or are inspired by them, but they they don't really teach a method to how they became. They they got their their knowledge mystically. <laughs> the Buddha is a mystic, but also a lucid teacher. So he. He knows what he got, he understands things, but he understands how he got it, that there is a method. So he describes how you would approach the development of equanimity, and the first thing he says is, first you've got to hear about it. And it's amazing how many people will go through this life and never hear about equanimity. So it's talks like this, it's books that you read, etc., that allow you to first hear about this interesting attitude, because equanimity is an attitude to the world around you. It's a vision of the world. It's something that I am profoundly profoundly grateful for coming across and that somebody took the time to explain it and show how precious it was. I got, of course, uh, some exposure to the idea of this. It's usually in uh, the Western tradition. It goes to the Greek origins as more or less rationality, Aristotle praising the rational person who is not swept away by rhetoric and hysteria doesn't uh, do you much good. You don't really live that way. There's no advocacy. When you, when you study philosophy in university, there's no advocacy that you actually take on any of these. Uh, these things are just curious, historical, a series of historical ideas which are critiqued by the next generation and 
often abandoned or modified. <clears throat> so uh, it's only when I looked in the East uh, that I came across this other view of things. Um, and it wasn't just in Buddhism. It was one, one in, uh, also in reading Taoism. <clears throat> I came across a uh, just a phrase in the, in, the, in one English translation of the Tao Te Ching. It's beautiful. Five thousand Chinese characters are basically five thousand words. The total teachings of Lao Tzu, approximate contemporary of the Buddha. And I, it was very, very beautiful, very straightforward. A bit hard to understand sometimes, but I did come across one phrase which was very profound for me, and that was give up running the universe. Just that. <laughs> and I actually laughed out loud when I read that. Because <laughs> I, re- and that was what I was struggling with at the time. It's like, uh, you are in a, uh, you are emotionally, or part of your emotional structure is contesting with the universe a lot. Is in a, <clears throat> it's in a involved in a critique of the universe. It's arguing. It's replanning how it should work, um, and also. From my generation, the boomer generation, there was a lot of uh, political uh, and social justice kind of stuff happening, and you get uh, more or less encouraged to invest heavily in uh, your your righteous indignation, which is not the subtleties of this are not very well explained. It's it's more or less outright disappointment and hostility to things that you think or somebody else told you you should think should be changed. And this is your this is your attitude that you take up and that's a very wearying, wearing kind of attitude. You are attempting to run the universe. Now this idea that you should give up running the universe doesn't mean that you are now going to be apathetic and you don't care. It just means that it's silly to think that you run the universe, that you, the universe runs by itself, and anytime you get in an argument with it, you lose. Always. It wins every single argument. So Lao Tzu is smart enough to say, you know, quit that. Stop arguing with it. You're wasting your time, your energy, your life, and you're you're not free. And the Buddha is saying exactly the same thing. Says so the Buddha just spends more time saying it and giving you exercises how to negotiate this. Is the problem with Taoism and Lao Tzu is that it's it's so brief and cryptic that it doesn't give you the techniques. It just states the a few of the cases in a in a, a few sentences. So unless you're an intuitive genius, you really you can't make much out of it. <clears throat> so <clears throat> this 
attitude of uh, giving up running the universe is just so important, especially, I think, in our time as well. It's just people are so hyper-engaged in it. It's exhausting. And without uh, being uh, negligent or apolitical or any of these things, you can disengage from wasted energy. So this is the convergence of, of rationality and emotion. So the first thing the Buddha says, give, give ear to listening to somebody talking about it. But then the next stage is, and then turn it over in your mind. Before you can really act on this in any authentic way, you have to, you have to think about it a lot. You have to be convinced by your own reasoning process and the emotions that accompany it that the, that you're clear and certain of this that this is the right attitude that this is the right thing to do lots of people will be very very hard to persuade them of that and the buddha by the way never tries to persuade anybody of anything He's smart enough not to waste his psychic energy persuading people. Remember that he, when he started teaching, he was very reluctant. He didn't want to teach at first. He thought it would be a, might be a waste of time. And then he, he decided that there probably would be some people who would benefit. But he never um, needed to argue anybody into a position. He, he, didn't, he, wasn't, uh, he didn't have anything at stake. He didn't need people to understand. He wasn't getting points for that. And he realized the limits of argument, of persuasion, of logic, of rhetoric. It has limits. Uh, It can only do so much. And if the person is not coming towards you, uh, then it's fine. The Buddha just said, you know, I I don't, uh, you know, he, he says, I come for the benefit of the many never says, I come for the benefit of all. He is not here to save everybody or anything like that. Just some, some will benefit. And because they benefit, uh, there will be a secondary benefits from people who encounter those people, etc. But he hasn't got any stake in actually swaying anybody. He doesn't need to win an argument. He just states it, offers lucid views and doesn't have to clinch the argument because he is clear and he's a great philosopher that many of the most important points in life can't be clinched. They, they have some, some uh, arguments in favor and against, but there is no final compulsive uh, argument that that resolves these things. Equanimity is this convergence of rationality and emotion, and it is this that, and I try to summarize it in a phrase that I use, a little provocative, a little, but kind of gets you the idea. The worse it gets the better I feel. 
which is um, not the way most people work. The worse it gets, the worse you feel. The better it gets, the better you feel. That's not equanimity. Equanimity is independent of whether it's worse or better. So the worse it gets, the better I feel. So would it follow that the better it gets, the worse I feel? No. The better it gets, the better I feel. (laughs) And the worse it gets, the better I feel. (laughs) In both cases, I feel fine. That's, the, that's what equanimity is. It's not tied into any duality. It's not tied into a duality of successes and failures, of praise and blame, of fame and obscurity. None of those dualities, teeter-totters, is it not uh, tied into? It's exempt. They don't have any gravitational pull. It's like a body that's out of the gravitational field. It's in space, away from the pull of these things. So these things exert their influence on people's mind because they haven't taken the adequate time to understand how how this detachment works. Detachment is simply the untying of knots or the a key which is inserted in, in uh, the cuffs that you're bound to the world by. You can actually open those things, just take them off, and you're, not, you're no longer in a um, hostage-type situation to the world, hostage to fortune. Is that Shakespeare? I forget. A hostage to fortune. That's interesting. That fortune itself, just the random events of the world, take you hostage. But if you manage to uh, undo these, you can't be taken hostage anymore. It's quite something. You will, as you practice this, you will, of course, feel... If when you manage to get it clear, you will feel very empowered, very, very independent, very light, free. You will realize, you, you will be very, very thankful as well that people work this out, thought this through. It's, it's absolutely ingenious. And it's not the kind of thing that would occur to an ordinary person. What occurs to an ordinary person is they get sick of being entangled in the world and they look for a way out, but they usually don't, they don't have the skill to find a wholesome way out, so they usually take up, I don't care anymore. They just, I, I, I refuse to feel. I can't feel anymore. I rather, I'm calloused. I don't have any sensitivity to it. Or I hate it. I despise it all. I've had enough of you. <laughs> Die. <laughs> that's, that's, you can see the person uh, wants to solve this problem. The problem is that the world keeps assaulting them emotionally by doing, making tragedies like the Second World War <laughs> or other little things like that.
beheading your family. <laughs> it's an assault, terrible assault. How do you get out of that? How do you sur- how do you survive? Do you want to even survive? So lots of people don't. It's so uh, abusive. The world can be so abusive that you don't want to survive. You would rather just check out now. So is there a, a better solution to this? Is there a solution to it? And is there a better solution? And indeed there is. And equanimity is that. Is to remain absolutely in pristine health. And in not just pristine health, but super normal emotional health, well-being. In the midst of this, the world continues to go on. It continues to do these things, savage things. Uh, but you found a way to be to be free in the midst of that. So that's the nature of equanimity. You don't have to shut down, but you have to choose to respond uh, in a positive way. And the the choice is yours. <clears throat> so the universe doesn't assign you an emotion during the day. You don't get assigned. You you don't wake up in the morning and wonder how you're going to feel today, or what the world is going to tell you to feel. Is it going to tell you to be very sad, or is it going to disappoint you with the weather? Is it going to make you celebrate because uh, it's sunny today, or you got a raise at work, or something like that? This is a terrible position to be in. You're a slave to the circumstances of the world and so you're going to remove yourself from that but without ending up uh, living on the margins necessarily so it's a kind of a decision you make that you don't need to have you don't need to be calloused you don't need to be apathetic and you don't need to despise the injustices of the world they're all just something that you would do to yourself in it which is another negative thing at the same time you don't have to be always asking the world how you should feel So you take possession of your feet. You realize that all along, throughout your entire life, you you have been the source of how you feel. It's not the world. It never has been the world. The world has no effect whatsoever on you. You're the one that creates your emotional structures. You're the one who feels. You do it. You just thought that the world did it to you. But when you come to a meditation retreat, you find out a lot of interesting things. One is you're sitting in a big, empty, very nice room and you're going through dramas. There are no dramas in this room. It's a big, empty room. Now, when you're driving in traffic to work and everything, you go through these dramas, but you think, of course I'm going through a drama. It's right in front of me. The guy won't... It was a green light. The guy didn't start and then we missed the light and now I'm late for work. And the world did that to me. That's why I feel this way. When you sit in an empty room and it still happens to you, you still go through these dramas, you still invent these scenarios, and if it's not an actual memory, you will invent one. You will, you will create a scenario, imagining. Then you realize, okay, it's undeniable at that point that you 
are actually crazy. (laughs) I will uh, digress here for a moment. A story comes to mind. (laughs) Funny story that this is a this is a long time ago. I was in West Virginia, um, I, maybe a year or two in the robes, and uh, a woman showed up at the monastery who was from Russia, and her name was Olga. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Olga was something else. She had been a, a doctor, a medical doctor, and a dentist both in Russia, and a professor of medicine at the university in Moscow. Uh, But she had been, um, and this was was in the late 80s, and she had been, uh, the government asked, wanted to go around and uh, do certain kind of medical things with people that she didn't agree with that was... Uh, not ethical and so forth. So she was not cooperating and they made her the janitor in the university. So one day she's teaching (laughs) the courses and the next day she's sweeping the steps and the students, her medical students are walking past her and saying, why are you sweeping the steps? She said, oh, it's just back exercise. It's good exercise. (laughs) Anyway, she managed to... uh, get out of Russia eventually, she, she and her mother, and she arrived in Boston. And there was a, an Orthodox Russian community there, um, and she was uh, had been disturbed by this experience. She also, by the way, had had a husband who went mad, insane. She looked after him for a number of years until he became institutionalized. So anyway, this is a very interesting process. She's in in a kind of a condition of a dystopian country with a dystopian family. (laughs) And then suddenly plunked into the U.S. So she was uh, looking for some sort of... uh, her, her, her Her husband had been obsessed with vegetarianism. That was one of his uh, things. And uh, she decided that she thought it would be good to go to a vegetarian resort or something like that. And she asked her friends about this and said, oh, yeah, we know a place like that. And we'll take you there. So she got all ready to go and got her suitcase. And she arrived at this place. And they, they let her out of the car. Beautiful place. Very nice, nice kind of buildings and gardens and lawns and stuff. And she noticed people on the grounds were walking in slow motion. They were just, they were walking very, very slow. And she's watching this and it suddenly hit her. She was crazy, and her friends had not told her. They told her she was coming to a vegetarian resort, but they'd taken her to a mental hospital. 
And these, being a doctor, she knew. These are ambulatory schizophrenics. So she sat down on her suitcase and wept. She hadn't realized she was... She must be mad. She must be insane. And her friends didn't have the... They didn't want to tell her that, but they just brought her to the play. <laughs> anyway, she, after a while, she saw two men in long kind of brown robes walking. And they were walking between one building to another building. And then the ambulatory schizophrenics also went to that building. <laughs> so she went to that building and looked in. And there was this lo- a whole bunch of people like sitting on the floor. And the men in the brown were at the front. They had no hair. And they were saying something. So she went in the back and just kind of listened. And they talked and they talked. And she said, it was the most amazing things they were saying about the mind and all this kind of stuff. She had no idea she was in a Buddhist retreat in Barry, IMS at Barry, Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah. So these the monks were the the doctors, right? <clears throat> anyway, she began to to meditate. She dis, she discovered meditation. <laughs> so this. Uh, we are actually, yeah, you are in the right place. You are kind of in a mental hospital. <laughs> the same, you are out, everybody is a little crazy out there. Uh, in, in the fact that we attribute our feelings to the world. We attribute it to the environment outside of us. And, it, and at the same time, it's clear that we're creating it. And all you have to be is isolated from all these things. And you realize you, you are doing it projecting it, making it up. So the ideas about equanimity, that you, now this is very empowering at first, but it's, uh, again, the, the daunting task is to make that realization, uh, to find your freedom in it, to actually stop doing that, to stop attributing it to the world. And you, you try... And then you fail, and you try, and you fail. You get moments uh, which are very encouraging. But so this is what the the Buddha is setting up a school of of encouragement as well. Peers, peer groups that encourage you to that this is not just something you do that you might manage to do on a weekend or something, and, and not have a trouble with it the rest of your life, but a kind of a lifetime practice that you will work towards this combination of lucidity. And the emotional release that comes from this, the, the, you're finding independence, or what we call detachment. Detachment is another word for freedom and independence. Emotional freedom and independence from what you thought was running your life. The world around you is not running your life. <clears throat> And equanimity is perhaps the most beautiful, perfect representation of that uh, independence and freedom. Because that's where emotion, and a very exquisite emotion, and uh, exquisite rationality combine at that point. 
And again, it's not just in Buddhism that this is known. You'll, you'll find traces of this in other schools and, in, and individuals that assert this kind of experience in history. They, they come across this. I'd just say that Buddhism is the, certainly the, most, the largest and most well-organized school that not only advocates it, but provides like a, a training structure for this. So equanimity is aloof from these uh, polarities that the world offers you. But you have to practice it. You have to realize, just so you, you, you go through reasoning processes like this, you think, you hear about a tragedy. So you hear about the World Trade Center or, or some sort of uh, massacre in Africa, you know, or this, you hear about this, the camps in the Second World War, the concentration camps, and all this, you just, you hear about that, and you just, it kind of just is, is overwhelming. And you think, this is a tragedy has occurred, but just rationally, you have to think. Right now, there's about seven billion, seven and a half billion people alive, and everybody has to die within a hundred years. Most people don't live more than a hundred years, so one percent of that population has to die every year. That's seventy million people have to die every year, and they. So, you know, the, the car accidents and little wars and stuff, they really don't have a, any, they hardly affect the, the statistics of that. 70 million have to die. Um, and they don't die easy. Not everybody dies easy just because it's not a war. Maybe in, in a war, like to be shot, which would you rather have actually to be shot or have cancer for five years slowly you know being eaten alive which one do you want maybe a war is better one way or the other this stuff has to go on and it does go on and that's just the people who die but if 70 million people have to die every year how how many of them are sick injured in catastrophes, you have to flesh that out. It has to be five times that. It's got to be 350 million people every year that are either de- dying or dead or in some sort of significant pain and problems. And that doesn't even, we're not even talking about the animals yet. <laughs> so that's going on constantly, but you. I'm sure you all have good days where you think everything's going well. <laughs> yeah, could be a whole week could, could go by and there's no tragedy happening, you know. No World Trade Center thing or somebody mowing down a bunch of people on a sidewalk with a car or walking into a school and shooting up a bunch of kids. <laughs> You know, and every every now and then it happens. You're shocked, like, "Oh my God, this world! What this world?" That's, the world is at if seventy million people have to die, and and five times that many have to have major trauma and stress, just this statistically. And yet, you have good weeks, 
Boy, you're not, you're really not disturbed at all. You're quite happy. The things seem to be going well in the world. <laughs> and every now and then you get kind of caught, you know, uh, caught with this. So just think that, uh, obviously it's all an illusion, um, that you're quite, you're quite healthy while every year the inevitable happens and more people than all that died in the, both the second and First World War combined have to die every year. And you're, it doesn't bother you actually. You're fine. It's not that you are callous to it. It's not that you're furious with it or anything like that. You're, you're just, you feel all right. And you should. Why wouldn't you? What sense would it make to actually continuously be in distress over those facts? How would that help? In what way? The only way it would... What it would it do is make things worse. For you to react in a negative way, to be distressed about that, means that you would now have 70 million plus one <laughs> suffering <laughs> person. You would just add to this. It makes sense not to add to the suffering. There's enough suffering. Why would you add yours to the suffering? You should do the opposite. That's why I say, the worse it gets, the better I feel. You, you need to go away from the suffering, not towards it. You need to remove the suffering from yourself and not add to the net suffering of the world. <clears throat> and you should not add your happiness just when things are going well. Because, of course, things, the next day it won't go well. And if, you've, if you have a reason be, to celebrate because things have gone well, then that, you will lose that when it doesn't go well because you, you've attached it for a reason to the world. So this is a form of, equanimity is a form of unreasonable happiness based on rationality. So you're completely reasonable. To be completely reasonable is to be completely unreasonable. Unreasonably happy because a, the, the true, truly lucid, truly rational person understands that you should not need to be reasonably happy. You don't need a reason for it. The reason is clear. There's only, that's the only thing that is good to do. The rest is unnecessary and irrational suffering. <clears throat> so I suppose you could say you can be unreasonably happy or unreasonably sad. Take your choice. They're both unreasonable. So that is equanimity is the pinnacle of and convergence of lucidity, rationality, logic, and the heart. You can never, if you leave the heart out, you are not rational. You're not reasonable because there isn't a human life without emotion. We're not machines. 
and you would be in a state of deprivation, profound deprivation, if you only had your intellect. You, your intellect serves your emotions, it's subordinate to your emotions, and can be very helpful to your emotions. So these two things, that's the convergence, that's the perfect harmony and convergence of these two things. They're now not enemies. Uh, they're indispensable to each other, and they're supporting each other. Of course, if you're emotionally well, your your the capacity, your lucid capacities, your capacity to reason, will be as good as it possibly can be. So, if you do need to do some work with the mind, logical work, rational work, planning work and everything, one of the best things you can do is stop thinking for a while and and lighten the heart up first and then you will do much better work with the mind. The mind is terribly dependent on the lightness of the heart. So I will leave that tonight.